0: Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come to you on the merits and the work of Christ this morning, and we ask for the fullness of your Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired the writing of this book. God, we want to see in Christ what you see in Him. Would you show us who He is? Would you show us what your heart is like? And would you chase our hearts this morning through the preaching of your word? Would you pull back the veil of your beauty and the gospel? And would you minister deeply to us? that we want to behold you in and through your scriptures. And I'm aware for that to happen. A lot more needs to take place than just me preaching what's on this manuscript. So God... By your spirit, would you allow the sermon that is heard to be far more effective than the one that is preached? For your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. When you get what you want in your struggle for wealth, and the world makes you king for a day, then go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that guy or gal has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or spouse whose judgment you must pass. The one whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. I once heard a pastor share this poem, and I was struck at just how sadly accurate that poem has become the mantra of our day. That what's most important in this life is really what I think about Myself, how I feel, what my approval is. And and this morning, we might might not like the idea that there's one whose verdict is more important than the one staring back from the glass. But that reality is emphatically true. And just because something is unpopular doesn't mean that it's untrue. So this morning, we turn... To the objective standard of truth that's found in God's Word. And we turn to the book of Zephaniah. So I would invite you to open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter three. If you use the Bible provided for you, you can find that on page seven hundred ninety. Zephaniah chapter three will be mainly in verses nine through twenty. Three would be the larger number, normally in the corner. The smaller numbers would be the verses, verses 9 through 20. In this book, we're really confronted with who God is and what God is really like. To give you a little context, it's it's about 80 years after the northern kingdom of God's people have been swept away by Assyria. And the southern kingdom of Judah continues to sink deeper and deeper into rebellion against God. And as they're sliding further along against God's good design, the Lord in kindness raises up a king, a good king, King Josiah. You can read about this king in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23. But he doesn't just raise up a king that would lead to some God-honoring reform. He also raises up a prophet. And that prophet is Zephaniah. And this prophet shows up warning God's people about the coming day of judgment, the day of the Lord. The coming day of the Lord would be marked by white-hot, intense judgment against all sin and sinners. It would be unthinkable how ruinous this day would be for sinners. And yet, like a double-edged sword, it would also be unthinkable how gloriously, how gloriously marvelous the day of the Lord will be for those that are in God. This one, this one whose verdict counts most, more than the one that stares back at us from the glass, this one is Yahweh, the covenant faithful God who made a people where there was no people. And before you write off this one, because he is coming in judgment and because there's wrath towards sin, I would just invite you to consider his kindness and his mercy in and through the book of Zephaniah. But he, even while holding up the truths that he will come in judgment, he will come to avenge all wrong, there's also a kindness in this invitation to repent, to come out of sin, and to come know this God, not on the basis of His judgment, but on the basis of His mercy and His grace. Zephaniah's prophecy would begin uh, by saying that all the earth would be judged. This would include even his double-minded people who would not walk humbly in his ways. We see that in Zephaniah chapter 1. And then in Zephaniah chapter 2, the first three verses, we get this stunning glimmer of hope as there is this call to repent. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of anger of the Lord, seek the Lord. The gracious invitation of this God who will come is to seek Him. To come out away from sin. And so if the news goes bad to good, the rest of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3 goes back to bad. And we begin to see just how bad this news is. We read of the terrifying judgment against the godless nations that are surrounding the people of God. And before God's people could begin to gloat over the fact that God would give them what they deserve. There's one more indictment on his people in chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. Until this point, this heavy, intense book focusing on God's righteous judgments against the wicked, it has it's this dark backdrop with 3 verses Zephaniah chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. 3 verses this glimmer of hope in this invitation to repent. And it's at this point that our passage picks up this morning. The only thing more awe-inducing and more scandalous and more heart-pounding than the wrath of God is the glorious salvation of God. If we understand this uh, rightly, We will be just as, if not more overwhelmed, by the sheer ferocity of God's mercy. Not just of His wrath. Of His salvation and His love. There is a glorious future for those who have taken refuge in God's provision on that day of the Lord. And so the aim for the original hearers is the same aim for us this morning. That as we would hear about this gloriously stunning salvation of God, that we would long for Him. That our souls would be arrested. That we would want more of this God willing to forsake all sin to lay hold of Him. Verse 8 is the summons to wait on the day of the Lord. And then in and nothing short of a torrential downfall of this glorious waterfall of the streams of salvation of God Zephaniah gives seven jaw dropping I can't, I can't I did this this weekend seven jaw dropping truths of God's salvation that will be found on the great day of the Lord and so this is what I want to do this morning I want to just sort of take each of us And imagine the most powerful waterfall that you can imagine. And just imagine we can suspend reality that we could go stand under it. This morning, I just want us to stand under the waterfall of the riches that flow from the salvation that's found in God. I want us to be immersed in it. And so what we'll do is we'll briefly touch most of these seven. We'll drill down into one or two of them. Seven glorious truths about this merciful and gracious God and the salvation He brings. Number one, God will restore His people. He will restore His people. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of the dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. And so Zephaniah begins by addressing a people whose lips had disqualified them from serving the Lord. If you go back to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 5, verse 9, verse 12, will be much like what other prophets would say. It's not that these people were walking around just cussing. Just sort of, ah, they're a foul language people. No, it's that these people were walking around and with lips professing praise to God, all the while their hearts being far from Him. And so the fact that they had impure lips was really a reflection of the, care, the condition of their heart. They had impure hearts. God will restore pure speech to these people Meaning that God will bring a cleansing to this people. This purification envisions a repentance that's being accomplished in the hearts of God's people. God would pour out His grace. And the response then would be, not just that we would have pure hearts, and now we don't say things we don't really mean, but no, what's verse 9 say? That we would then with these lips call rightly on the name of the Lord. Friends, just a reminder, even at the outset of this, that God's grace is big enough to deal with your sin problem. His grace is greater than your sin. And these people respond not only in calling on His name rightly, but in serving Him. They are saved so that they may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him. They are saved so that they may worship Him. So too are we, Christian brothers and sisters. God changes hearts so that we would rightly enjoy Him. God changes hearts so that we would rightly honor and worship Him. The culmination of God being gracious to His people is that there would then be a people who would worship Him. And here's the reality, is that every one of us this morning, we stand in need of this kind of restoration. We do. We need to be restored. Not merely because we've got foul language. Not merely because we've got a bad habit, but because our hearts are impure, fundamentally broken, unable and undesirous even to honor the God to whom we are accountable for whom we've been created. Deep down, we feel dirty and we know that we can't be among this God who is so different and so holy. And it's why some of us avoid conversations about God. It's why some of us avoid church and services that center on God. It's because we feel like, it's almost like we feel like we're being invited to some type of wedding and all we have are just filthy gym clothes, like the clothes that you put on when you mow your yard. Right? Those shoes. Everybody, we have those shoes. You, just, you, you you put this on and, and you think, no, 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 this is not proper to show up into a wedding. And we think, well, no, no, because of my sin, I just, it's not proper for me to be among this kind of holy God. And the message of the Christian faith is not, hey, guess what? It doesn't really matter. He loves anyway. No, the message of the Christian faith is that your garments are far more filthy than you could ever imagine. And yet, in unfathomable grace and mercy, God's love is more amazing than you could ever imagine. He has made a way for really rotten and broken people to stand right before God, a really guilty people to be acquitted before God. He has made a way for us to to really lose the impurity in our hearts. He's going to change the spiritual condition of his people, and he's going to do it by purifying a people. And perhaps the question that you're thinking is, how in the world is God going to be merciful to some people and restore them when His justice calls for just punishment because of sin. And that answer is, uh, is not fully given in the Old Testament. Though all of the Old Testament is this snowball of anticipation for that answer. And as soon as the New Testament opens, we are met with that answer. God's justice and mercy resolve only in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. His blood cleanses you and I from our sin. And it is the only thing that can make impure hearts like ours clean. It is the only thing that can bring unrighteous people into a standing before a righteous God. And he does that through the giving of his son. And Jesus comes and He lives a life of perfect righteousness. So it's not just, man, I've got a sin problem. No, no, we've also got a deficit of righteousness problem. And Jesus comes and He lives that life that is perfectly righteous. And then He dies on the cross as a substitute. He becomes sin. He doesn't become a sinner. He becomes sin for us that we might then become the righteousness Of God. He washes us clean. He takes our sin stained clothing. Upon himself at the cross. Absorbing the wrath of God. Justly earned by sinners. And all who bow their knee. In submission to him. He graciously. Doesn't just leave them naked. Puts on his righteous robes. The great exchange, He takes my sin. I receive His righteousness because of the work on the cross. And if the story ended there, it sounds really, really good, but we are still without hope. And praise be to God, it doesn't. Because this Christ has the power. He has the keys of sin and death in His hands. Death doesn't get the last word. He raises from the dead on the third day. And the Bible then says, all who turn from sin and place their faith and trust in Him, they are clean and they can come to Him. And so if you feel far from God this morning and you think, nope, not me, I can't get in. Look how filthy my clothes are. Your clothes, your heart is more filthy than you can imagine. But Christ can wash your sins away. Friends, would you turn from your sin? And would you lean into and trust the work of this Christ as your only hope to ever stand before God, rightly justified? You can know. You can know that cleansing even today. There's no shame in walking into this building not knowing that cleansing. After hearing what's available to you, I would just plead with you, don't walk out in the same shame. Come to Christ. Trust in Him. Talk to anyone in this room. It would be their joy to explain to you how because of the work of Christ, we go from filthy to pure. From guilty to not guilty. From enemies to sons and daughters. I would plead with you. Trust in Christ. Friends, the good news of God's glorious salvation, it begins here. He restores his people. But that's not all he does. Let's get back in the waterfall and just allow it to fall over us. Second glorious truth of God's salvation. God will remove his people's shame. Verse 11. And on that day you shall not be put to shame, because the deeds, of, uh, the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. And so God's people have earned this badge of shame because of how they have dealt the, uh, treated the one true triune God. And each of us who have received the sin nature that's been passed down one generation to another since Adam and Eve, we too have earned that badge of shame. God says here that He's going to eliminate the proud from among His people. And He's going to keep a humble and lowly people. And just to be sure, if you are willing to go low and to admit your need, then you are qualified to be among the humble. But if you are going to insist that you don't need a God like that because you're good enough, the warning of Zephaniah 3, verse 11, is that you will not be among His people who receive his salvation. God's people then and God's people today feel embarrassed and defiled because of our sin. But if we will take refuge in God through the provision of God, in and through the work of Christ, then shame isn't the last and final word for us. Think about Jesus. Jesus constantly moved towards those throughout His ministry that were filled with shame. And some of those people that were very shameful ridden would touch Christ and instead of making Christ defiled it would be Christ who would touch them who would rid them of their shame how does God remove our shame we see this in the cross he's identified with the shameful people by suffering a most shameful death Shame does not die easily. If you're a Christian, you can say, yes, I know the truth about shame. And I know that Christ died to bear my shame. But shame does not die easily. We can't wish it away. We can't just sort of think happy thoughts and it goes away. No, we need the work, the performance of another to cover our shame. We need to know that even in our shame, we're not alone. And again, this all comes back to the provision of God ultimately in Christ. Christ delights to welcome people who will come to Him. He delights to welcome those that are full of shame. He delights to welcome the idolaters and the self-righteous and people who've blown it again and again and again, but yet in humility will bring their sin and their shame to Him. And so it's not possible for God's people then, in Zephaniah's day, to continue in their proud ways and to receive this salvation. No, Jesus says, come to me. I'm the one who welcomes people like you covered in shame. And I have borne your shame so that you would know that I am well pleased with you. Are you mired in shame this morning? In Christ, there is no shame to be mired in. He bore it all. And so how is it that God is going to remove shame from His people? Christ is the way that He does it. Third glorious reality of God's stunning salvation. Verse 12, God will be refuge for His people. God will be refuge for His people. Listen to verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So not only is God going to remove the proud from among his people, he's also going to leave a remnant, this small number of lowly and humble people. And let's just be clear, humility isn't being quiet in the presence of many people when you really think highly of yourself. Humility is not self-restraint. Humility isn't taking sides with God against your sin only. It's also taking sides with God against your best deeds. It's a confession. Humility is this confession that says, I need a righteousness that's outside of me. Nothing I can do will earn me standing with God from within. And because they're lowly and humble, then they're able to find refuge because they're willing to find it in the Lord. I wonder this morning, are you actively taking refuge in your God? God must bring about this humiliation of the proud. He must do this. And He must do to those who love their sin what Christ endured on the cross. And so when we take refuge in Him, we hide under His work. That's a major distinctive of the people of God. They take refuge, they hide under the provision of Christ. Even when the world is crashing around them, a major distinctive of the people of God is their ability to trust in God because they're hiding in God. When the world all around you is crumbling, are you able, because of the refuge that you've taken in your God through Christ, are you able then to have unswerving confidence? Are you able to have trust that's consistent? There is a refuge to be found. And for those who've never trusted in Christ, there is no hope to escape God's wrath. There is no refuge that you can hide in apart from the provision of Jesus, the Christ. And so trust in Christ. Run to Him for refuge and shelter. And for those of us who do follow Christ, this just helps us understand the glorious work of Christ. He has provided a safe covering. From God's righteous anger. Therefore, we are free now to experience the good pleasures of our God. Fourth stunning reality of this overwhelming salvation is that God will give his people rest. God will give his people rest, verse 13. I'm just going to keep going. I. I there's a lot here, Nathan has joked with me that I preached too long. I'm going to jump to number five, and then I'm going to jump to number six, and we'll land the plane there. So God will give His people rest, verse 13. I just want to say, are you able to rest in Christ? Is your, is your soul able to find stability amidst a world and a culture that is raging all around you? Like, God provides rest for His people, and Christ is the rest that He has provided for His people. But it's not just that. The fifth glorious reality of this stunning salvation, God will remove judgments against His people. We see this in verses 14 and 15. God will remove judgments from His people. There is an ability for His people to be able to rejoice. Because God has removed their offense against Him. He's not just turned and looked away. He has dealt with it. And that brings us then to number six. God will rejoice over His people. He will rejoice over His people. We see this in verses 16 and 17. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When you are frightened, it is not uncommon then for our hands, for our bodies to grow weak. But when God is ever-present, and God is in control, and God is our refuge, we don't have to experience the weakness. No, this previously weakened nation, in the presence of the mighty God Himself, they don't lose heart. They don't cower in fear. They don't have to flee from danger because God has already provided safety from danger. And if if the breathtaking beauty of this passage hasn't already been clear about what you have been given in and through, or if you're not a Christian, what is offered in and through the salvation of this God, these two verses are meant to take your breath away. God is for them. God is with them. And God is celebrating over them. He is a warrior among them. He's not attacking them, But he's a warrior bringing them his grace. He's a warrior who has saved them. What a picture this is. He is a warrior, but he's also this loving father who's rejoicing over his children. Like God is so often. I, I meet with members of our church and I have conversations with people. And I think oftentimes people think, yes, I'm a Christian, but I think God is generally just displeased with me. That's so I would ask you, how do you think God is with you this morning? Is He pleased with you? Is He displeased with you? And if you would say, I think He's displeased with me, is that because of how you feel? Is it because of the week that you had and the number of days you missed the time alone in the Word? Zephaniah 3 is meant to overwhelmingly correct Our bad theology. That if you are in God, meaning you have found refuge in the provision of His Son, Christ, God is not displeased with you. In fact, it's not just that there's an absence of displeasure, it's the presence of rorous joy over you. What's astonishing is that this kind of grace has been given to those who've rejected God over and over and over again. And, and I know some of you may be thinking, well I, that sounds good for them, but I know God wouldn't want to delight in me if you are in Christ, because of the beautiful triune work of the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. He has no other option. He delights in His Son. And if you are in Christ, that means that because of the merits of His Son, God the Father delights in you. You are far more loved than you could ever imagine. And that's not dependent on your ability to keep up the good work. You're free from that, brothers and sisters. There is coming a day when the people whom God predestined before the foundations of the world were laid will go Before him and like a groom that's gazing at his bride, he will roar in singing. And that song shakes the fabric of reality. And praise be to God, we don't have to wait for that day. We have to to wait for that day to audibly hear it. But we don't have to wait for that day to truly experience it. When God sings, there's nothing like it. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, God sings over you. He sings over you. The ESV says He will quiet you by His love. The New American Standard said He will be quiet in His love. I appreciate what Spurgeon said. He said... I'm not quite sure what this means, but I think it means this. He's never going to bring up your wrong. He loves you. There's no accusations. There's no shame. God is only for you all the time. Oh, glorious silence, Spurgeon say. He will be silent in his love. I'm inclined to believe that when the book shall be opened, Christ will read out the sins of the wicked. But he will be quiet. When it comes to my sins, because of the work of Christ. This love, it's not merely a love that's describing his covenant faithfulness. It's the love that's describing Jacob's love for Rachel. It made him easy. Uh, it, It made it easy to work for seven more years in order to get who he wanted. It's the love of the psalmist's delight in the law of the Lord. And so this isn't like obligational love. No, this is a sense of gladness over his people. And out of this quiet contemplation of his love comes this joy-filled song of delight for his people. How in the world can it be? How can it be that the God who earlier said that he would utterly sweep away all who were proud, how can he now be singing over this people? How can he be quiet in his love? Remember the provision of His Son, Christ. Remember the point where Jesus was silent. He goes on trial. He did not say a word because of the joy that was set before Him. Isaiah 53, 7, Like a sheep before His shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. The quietness of the love of God speaks of the depth of His love, and the depths of His love cannot be constrained. And so if you are a follower in Jesus, no matter what your relationship status is, no matter what your social media follower count is, there is a love for you that is unmatched. Married person who's in a marriage that is not what you hoped it would be, there is a love for you in Christ that is unmatched. Maybe you've lost the love of your life and you feel so incapable of picking up the broken pieces and moving on. There is a love for you in Christ that is unmatched. And maybe you're still single and you thought, well, I should have been married by now. And that's what everyone keeps telling you. And as the years go by, you do begin to wonder whether or not there is a love for you in Christ. There is a love for you that is unmatched. Maybe your close friends have betrayed you and let you down, and you feel like you're all alone. But in Christ, there is a love for you that is unmatched. As Matthew Henry put it, God doesn't just love you. He loves to love you. He loves to love you. Romans 5.8, but God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he demonstrated this love for us. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The cross and the empty tomb is the display of God's love for you. And if you have run to the cross in the empty tomb as your hope to be found right before this holy God, then God sings over you. He delights in you. And so the confirmation of God's love for you is not how well your current circumstances are going. No, the surety of his love is found at the cross and in the empty tomb. And so don't look at your trial. Don't look at the tragedies of your life and question the love of God. Look at the cross and know the depths of his love. For you. And Zephaniah says. That he will gather these humble. People. And he doesn't look down in disapproval. Like a father who's never pleased. And say yep you know what. You just didn't measure up all the time. He doesn't ignore us. No he rejoices over you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God shall rejoice over you. We must banish from our mind any thought that God just merely admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom. As though he has buyer's remorse. Thinking about ah, what I paid to make them my own, wasn't worth it. No. God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as the sacrifice. And when we trust him, God welcomes us with bells on. He puts the ring on our finger. He kills the fatted calf. He throws the party. He shouts a shout that shakes all of creation, and it ends in this festal dance. Satan knows your name, so someone says, and calls you by your sin. And this God knows you by your sin, or knows your sin and calls you by your name. And God's not belittled because God is singing over you. It would be unrighteous if God made us primary. It would be unrighteous if God elevated us to now God should worship us. That's not what He's doing. He's His own God. Does it belittle Michelangelo to look with tears in his eyes and to rejoice at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? No, and it doesn't belittle God when the divine work of your redemption is done and all the millions are gathered before his throne, the humble and the lowly, that God then would break forth in singing and rejoice over you with all of his heart. And so if we were to go to the mosque right now and we were to say, hey, tell us about your God. One of the ways we could get to an understanding of that God is by saying, hey, does your God sing? And they would say, no, that would be improper for God. Okay, let's go to the Hindu temple. Do your gods sing? No. Okay, let's go to the altar of secular postmodernism. Hey, give us your God. Any chance he sings? No. The universe is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's the choice before us. We either have deaf, dumb, mute, idolatrous gods or a God who sings. I hope you see this work, this stunning salvation. It's not just that the gospel is true, but it's that the gospel is supremely beautiful. It captures us. It speaks to the deepest needs of our hearts and the deepest emotions that we can feel. It's not just true. Praise be to God, it must be true, it is true, but it's not just true. It's not meant to just convince you intellectually, it's meant to move you with your heart, and in your heart. Christ is the only way that God rejoices over his people. And so Restoration Church, stop. Just stop. With the busyness of this life. And make time to listen to the song of your God. His disposition towards you is not, yeah, he's generally pleased with me. No. With as much affection that he has for his son, he has for you. And with as much approval that he has for his son, he has for you. Christ is the only way that God rejoices over His people. And just because I said there were seven, I will tell you the seventh reality of this stunning salvation. In verses 18 through 20, God will reward His people. And let's just be clear, the reward is nothing other than God Himself. Because of this salvation, there's not only restoration that's possible. There's not only shame that's removed. There's not only a refuge to hide in. There's not only a rest to experience. There's not only judgments that are gone. There's, it's not only God is rejoicing over us. No, it all culminates in the fact that we get God. The very God that you and I were created for, that our sin keeps us from, we get Him. God promises His people. He will bring them together. He will pursue those who've attacked them. He will take what's been broken and restore it. He will take what's been shamed and restore dignity. He will give a place of honor and distinction to those that are humble. And He will do it for the praise of His glorious grace. If you're not a Christian, I have no clue where else you would go to find anything remotely close than all you gain with this God in and through His Son. And if you are a Christian, friends, our song should be loud because our confidence is unshaken. Because of this work, you and I are free to sing. And so let's put aside all pride and boasting. Let's take refuge in the name of God. Let's bank our hope on the righteousness of Christ. And let's let ourselves awaken to the wonder of this good God. The King of King. Who rejoices over you with gladness. And exalts over you with, glad, or with loud singing. Amen. To belong to this God is the best this world has to offer. Let's pray. Our holy God, as the word has gone forth, we just pray that you would allow our eyes to just lift up. Lift off the things of this world. Lift up over the problems of our day, lift up over the circumstances that are hard. May we lift up and may we think about your salvation and how it's possible because of Christ and what we have gained because of Christ. We of all people have reason to be joy-filled no matter what this life brings. And if our circumstances provide a poor view To help us find that joy, I pray that you would allow us to just behold you singing over us. Thank you. We're not worthy of that song. Thank you. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.